Chapter 15, Part 2 of The Weird Picture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mama Chida, Tangerang Selatan. The Weird Picture by John R. Carling. Chapter 15, Part 2. The Denouement Continued It seemed an age since Angelo had begun his recital, but as the church bells had not pealed the quarter, I knew he had not yet been fifteen minutes over it. My ears were keenly alert for any sound that might indicate that help was approaching, but everything was still and quiet outside the tower. I met Captain Willard late on Christmas Eve, returning from Daphne's house. I asked him to come to my studio for a few minutes. I have a surprise for you, I said. So I had. As I spoke, I had to turn my face from him to hide the light of triumph in my eyes. He came willingly enough talking of the happy morrow. We were alone. I led him to a picture on an easel. A present for your bride. Do you like it? I said, standing behind him. Oh, what a thrill was going through me. Yes, he replied, his last word. Well, how do you like that? I cried as my weapon descended. Hatred, love, fame, nerved my arm with a triple power, and I struck him down, down, down. This is how I did it. At this point, the maniac sprang to his feet with the rapidity of lightning and lifting the dagger on high, made a swift downward stab at an ideal figure. My heart gave a great leap, for I thought he was going to strike me. With one loud cry, he dropped. Thud! Oh, that cry. It rings in my ears still. It was the sweetest music to me. I stood over him with my draping weapon, ready to deal him a second stroke, and a red drop fell on his vest. I wanted him to cry, to move, to rise, that I might have the pleasure of striking him down once more. But he never moved after that one stroke, and I took him up in my arms and flung him down again that I might enjoy the luxury of the sound. Dropping the dagger, he illustrated his words by going through the motion of flinging a body to the ground. Anything more devilish than this manner I had never seen. And he fell thus, and lay in this manner, so. And here the maniac flung himself backward with his arms aloft and dropped to the floor so swiftly and naturally that I marveled he did not hurt his head on the yellow sanded stone. And there he lay in silence for a few seconds, with his eyes closed and his limbs rigidly extended 
in imitation of a dead body. I thought of the figure in the gray cloak that Fruin had seen lying on the floor of the picture gallery. That figure had been none other than the mad artist, whose diseased imagination gloried in the still hours of night in rehearsing the terrible drama of last Christmas Eve. His monomania, in fact, had taken the shape of a subjective re-slaying of the slain, united to an objective wearing of his victim's dress. Instead of destroying that evidence of his guilt, he had retained George's clothing and, as his subsequent ravings showed, regarded it as a memento of his own cleverness. The artist rose to his feet and flung himself back in his chair again, apparently exhausted by his emotion. Girl, he gasped, staring at me and striving to palliate the deed by the example of others. Girl, if Giotto stabs his living model on the cross that he might paint a crucified Christ, if Parasius damned his slave to torture that he may produce the agony of Prometheus in all its realism, may I too not have my victim? Cruel, it was a sacrifice to art. Churchmen have burned each other to the glory of God. Art is my God. And the maniac lifted his clenched hand aloft as if defying heaven. My rival was lying at my feet, dead. I wanted his clothing for my purpose, so I stripped him. Gods, what a figure for an artist! But he had received only one wound as yet. Caesar had many, so I dealt him some six strokes or more. How the red blood spouted up! Oh, those wounds! Poor dumb mouths! How eloquently they will speak from the canvas. What a divine picture I shall produce. Il Divino will deserve his name at last. Already I hear the voice of the public saying, What a genius this Vasari is! Ah, that reminds me, you have not yet seen my noble work of art. You shall. Tis behind that tapestry. Evidently, the maniac did not know that the picture had been removed. I trembled lest he should rise and discover its absence. To my mental agony was added physical suffering due to the unnatural position of my arms. For the sake of relief, I had often moved them to and fro and up and down at the back of the pillar. I was now moving them farther round than they had been before when my wrist came in contact with something sharp. Feeling with my fingers as well as I could, I discovered that a part of the column had crumbled away with time and presented a rough, ragged edge. An idea darted into my mind. An idea? Say an inspiration, rather. My wrists were not in contact. The breadth of the pillar prevented that. There was a distance about a foot between them. 
The silken band that secured me was drawn into a tight slip knot round one wrist and proceeding to the other, encircled it in the same manner, and then hung downwards trailing on the floor. Now, if I could but bring the band connecting my two wrists across the sharp edge of the stone, steady attrition would tear it into two portions, and I should be free. With some difficulty, I worked the twisted silk into the requisite place, and then began as vigorous a friction as my cramped position would allow, dreading every moment lest the madman should perceive my motions and detect their cause. Though bending all my energies to the task before me, I tried at the same time to give a listening ear to the artist, but I am of opinion that my further report of his utterances is far from being a faithful one. I donned my rival's attire. I was no more Angelo. I was the captain. How well his dress became me. Observe my military cloak. My martial stride, see my painted scar, my brown hair and beard. I had prepared for all these weeks beforehand. Who that saw me now would take me for poor Il Divino, whose pictures are always a failure. But I had no time to lose. The Dover train would be starting soon. And leaving my divine model locked up in the studio, I hurried off to the station, posting on my way the forged letter that was to tell Daphne that her bridegroom had fled to the continent. Now for Dover to prove the truth of the letter, the booking clerk, the guard of the train, the ticket collector, could all swear that an officer in every way resembling Captain Willard had traveled to Dover on that Christmas morning. I stood on the pier head expressly for you to see me. I knew that you were coming in by that steamer, for Daphne had told me the hour of your intended arrival. Ho, ho, his own brother thrown off the scent and ready to swear he had seen George at Dover at the very time that George was lying dead in my studio. It was a rare glee afterwards to listen with grave face to the various theories propounded in my presence to account for Captain Villard's flight, and the world calls me mad. I was not aware that the world did so, but if it did, it had ample reason in his wild laugh and demoniac glee. However, as his eyes were off me, I worked away desperately at my silken manacles. I must not return to London in the same attire. That would be contradict the latter, and I must not return in my own. That might involve me in suspicion and give rise to awkward questions if it were known that I had been at Dover on the morning of Captain Willard's flight. No, I would return disguised in a woman's dress. Ha ha, 
How often have I heard you discuss the identity of the veiled lady who traveled with you from Dover to London? Learn now that the veiled lady is before you. Now you know why she was dumb. I could not disguise my voice so effectually, but that you might recognize it next morning at the wedding. To say that I was amazed at this revelation is but a feeble way of expressing it. Great as was my amazement. However, it did not check for an instant my working for freedom. There was living then at Dover an old friend of mine from Rivoli, Matteo Carito by name. He was caretaker to an Italian family who were spending their winter abroad. I had paid him a chance visit the previous week, and he had casually told me that he meant to spend his Christmas with some Italian friends in London. He thought he might safely leave the house for a day or two. It would be empty then on Christmas morning. Good, unknown to him. I procured a key that would open the front door. In the secrecy of this house, I would assume my female disguise. Do you remember finding me outside old Matteo's house? You came on me as swiftly and silently as a ghost. I was startled, for I knew you were his brother. Daphne had many a time pointed out your portrait to me, and I thought all was discovered. But I baffled you. I eluded you. How adroitly you know. Matteo's house was my asylum, but Matteo had not gone to London after all, and discovered me in the very act of changing my attire. He wanted to know how I had gained access to the house and why I was masquerading in two different disguises. For a minute, I hesitated. I thought of braining him on the spot. It would have been rare sport, but I pitied him. He had known me from childhood, and I concocted some story that seemed to satisfy him at the time would now that I had slain him there and then, it would have saved me a word of trouble. He discovered it all. I was still tearing away fiercely at my bonds, confident that if the artist continued his ravings for a few more minutes, my hands would be free. The friction of the silk on the jagged edge of the pillar produced a sharp rustling noise, But the artist noticed neither the sound nor my motions, so taken was he with the story of his own cleverness. He seemed to be orating more for his own satisfaction than for my information. Yes, he discovered it all, continued he. I had thought myself safe, for had I not effectually disposed of the body, Steeping it in chemicals and wrapping it in asbestos I had in the dead of night, in the secrecy of my cellar, committed it to the flames. Ho, ho, a true classical funeral that, as became the subject, for was he not the pagan Caesar of my picture?
Fulcan, arise! Fasari, claim thine aid! Ah, what a glorious night that was as I moved round the funeral pyre, pouring an oil and chanting a note from her wrath. What a splendid picture it would have made! A pagan funeral! How I regretted that I had not prepared my canvas for the event, but it was too late to think of that. Then, one dark night, on some lonely common, I scattered the ashes to the four winds. Not a trace of my victim left. And yet, after all my care and caution, that old daughter of Matteo had discovered my secret discovered it by accident. I was at Paris exhibiting my picture to admiring thousands. Among those who thronged to gaze at my Caesar was a colonel Langworthy, but just returned from India. That face is very like my friend Willard, who disappeared so strangely last Christmas, he cried. I turned to the speaker. And whom should I see at his elbow but old Matteo, with his great eyes staring at me? He had heard this chance remark. He at once divined my secret. I was so infuriated that next day, when the colonel was coming to take a second view of my picture, I ordered him to be thrust out, a mad act for it cut into the newspapers and confirmed Matteo's suspicions. Thenceforward, I had no peace, for no bribe would stop his mouth. He was forever reproaching me. I had made him an accessory to a crime, he said. His conscience troubled him for having in a manner aided me to escape on that Christmas morning. He could not sleep at night. Poor fool! He could go no more to Mass with such a scene on his soul. He followed me to Rivoli. He must, he must confess all to the priest. Damn him! He did! That was why Father Ignatius refused me the Mass that morning. And Daphne present too, to witness my humiliation. It was that that caused her to look with a different face on me and to turn from my love with scorn. I marveled now that she is still living when I recall my fury at her refusal. She was nearer to death then, nearer to her lost George than she had been since her bridal morning. My old nurse said I was mad that day. Perhaps I was. No matter, let Daphne refuse me. Hate me as she will, she cannot recall her dead hero to life. There was consolation in that thought. That night, as I was making preparation to depart from Rivoli, I came across his grey cloak. I always carried it with me. It was a joy to gaze on it, to think how I had won it. It was a sign of my triumph. It was a proof that he would trouble me no more with his rivalry. I put it on, 
for I love to act the scene over again and sell it out in it. I remember now with what glee I climbed crags and cliffs, singing and dancing along. Aha! Who is this in monkey's garb that rises up before me in the moonlight? Old Matteo, as I live. Matteo, Matteo the betrayer. He sees me, he turns, he flees. Ha ha! What feeble steps! I hear him, how he pants for breath. With one fierce leap, I am on him. Ho, ho, my hand is on his old throat. How he struggles as I force him to the edge of the cliff. How he clings to me. Mercy, mercy, he screams. Mercy? To him who had robbed me of my fair model? He could not tell any more tales after I had finished with him. From the cliff, the artist stopped abruptly and assumed a listening air. Along the gravel path outside came the tread of many feet approaching the place of my captivity. My heart throbbed wildly with hope, for I made certain that it was the baronet and my uncle coming to my rescue. It was not so, however. Sounds of laughter, the rough voices of men mingling with the sweeter tones of women floated upward to our ears, and I knew then that it was the party returning from the vicarage. They passed quickly beneath the window of my prison, so quickly that I had scarcely time to realize the situation, and by and by were standing, so I judged, at the rear of the abbey. Then came a silence, followed by the twanging of strings, the faint puffings of wind instruments, and such sounds as are usually the prelude to music, and I knew that they were going to sing some carols for the edification of the baronet and the other tenants of the abbey. I glanced at the artist. Should I give one loud shout for aid? I hesitated, lest the cry should cause him to sheath his dagger in my breast. I resolved first to make one more attempt to burst my bonds, and, exerting all my strength, I strained desperately at the twisted silk, plunging forward as far as its limited length would allow, careless almost as to whether the eyes of the artist were on me or not. And now uprose an outburst of instrumental melody which lasted for a minute or so, and then, as the harmony subsided into fainter keys, the carol began. It was a solo. Whose tones were those that now rose so clear and silvery on the still frosty air? Was I doomed to die with Daphne's voice ringing in my ears? She thought, perhaps, that I was in the library listening to her voice, and she was singing with more than ordinary power and sweetness. How quickly her joy would have turned to terror had she but known my real situation. Ah-ha! screamed the maniac 
so loudly that it could scarcely fail to attract the attention of those without. Aha! The spirit! The spirits! I knew they would be here. They visit me every night. They know the work that is going on here. Listen, listen, listen to their voices. They are singing your requiem. How bravely they chanted at the foot of the gray old cliff the night I flung old Matteo over. What rare music! Ah, here they come, sliding down the moonbeams. God, what a throng! he exclaimed, springing up excitedly and striking at the empty air, which his delirium was peopling with phantoms. Off! Off! Do you not see them? One cannot move, breathe in this atmosphere. My confused mind heard, as in some weird dream fragments of his mad ravings mingling fantastically, with the words of the carol. Christ was born on Christmas Day, breathe the holy twine the bay, Christus natus hoji, the babe, the son, the holy one of Mary, he is born to set us free. Laus Deo. The band that connected my two wrists gave way. I was free, and at the same moment the first stroke of midnight chimed from the village steeple. At that sound the artist snatched up the dagger from the table and turned towards me. The hour is come. Art demands her victim. Stand off, you devil, or I'll brain you! I cried, springing forward with the ends of the purple silk trailing from my wrists. The pistols I had brought with me lay on the table beyond my reach, for the artist stood between them and me, and in default of any other means of defense, I snatched up the massive oaken chair and balanced it aloft, a feat I could not perhaps have performed in ordinary moments. But now excitement imparted a magical strength to every fiber of my body. Come on, I'm free now, I cried, brandishing the chair. Do you see me? Free, free, free! In the sudden joy of my recovered liberty, I was ten times madder than my opponent. The artist might have stood for an image of amazement. Silent and immovable he stood, staring at me with a vacuous look, evidently unable to comprehend how I had gained my freedom. Then suddenly Daphne's voice was drowned in a loud tumult and in the quick trampling of numerous feet. This was immediately followed by a succession of strokes on the massive panels at the door, dealt by some heavy implements, accompanied at the same time by the sounds 
as of persons scrambling up the ivy outside towards the casement. Rescue was at hand, and now across the oblong patch of moonlight that lay on the stone floor between me and the maniac appeared some dark shadows, and turning towards the casement to ascertain the cows, the artist beheld human faces peering in through the diamond-shaped panes. The cold night air swept with a rush through the broken panes, bringing with it the wild crash of the Christmas bells, a tumult of voices, and Daphne's thrilling scream. Peril makes some men mad. It made Angelo sane. He realized the situation, realized that his hated rival was slipping from his power, but the knowledge of this fact only made him more desperate. Damn you! You shall not escape! He cried fiercely. I'll have your life, though I die the next moment for it. With the dagger gleaming aloft, he darted on me. Measuring him with my eye, I swung the chair round and tried to bring it down on his head, but he eluded the blow by springing deftly to one side. The robe of tragedy is often soon with the threads of comedy. The chair intended for the artist lighted instead of his unfinished picture and went sheer through the canvas, overturning the easel and inflicting more damage to the painted colosseum in two seconds than old time has been able to inflict on the solid original in well nigh two millenniums. My picture! Oh, my picture! cried the artist. You have destroyed it! Petrified with dismay, he gazed on the ruins of his work of art, oblivious for the moment of everything else. Taking advantage of his surprise, I sprang forward and seized him by the throat with such force and energy that he toppled backwards and measured his length on the floor of the cell. I fell with him. That's it! Bravo! Hold him down! cried a voice, which I recognize as the baronet's. We'll be with you in an instant! Sir Hugh, my uncle, and some others were standing on the window ledge, striving to effect an entrance by forcing asunder the slender crossbars of the casement. The artist lay extended on the floor of the cell. My knee was on his chest, and with one hand I grasped him by the throat, and with the other pinioned to the floor his hand that held the dagger. I tried to keep him in this position till aid should come, but with the strength almost superhuman he rose to his feet, dragging me with him and grappling with each other, we swayed backwards and forwards in the moonlit cell. I always hated you, he gasped, but for you I might have won the love of Daphne. You shall not escape me. He made frantic effort to reach me with the dagger, 
but I clung heavily to the arm that held it, impeding his power of action. At length, with a sudden effort of strength, he flung me off. But as he did so, the crossbars of the casement gave way, and three human bodies were projected through it in a most ungraceful fashion, and fell on all fours to the floor. For one second, the artist stood irresolute, and then darting towards the secret opening, he disappeared from view. The cell seemed to swim around me, a mist passed before my eyes, and then dimly as in a dream, I became conscious that I was reclining in an oaken chair, supported on one side by my uncle, and on the other by Daphne. The door of the tower was wide open, hanging obliquely on one hinge. Someone was putting a lighted match to the wick in the antique iron lamp, and its bright flame lit up a crowd of faces that were bent upon me with wondering looks. At one end of the cell some men, a helmeted police officer among the number, were kneeling, fingering and clawing at the stone slab which the artist had pulled down after him to cover his retreat. It must be chained down, I heard the baronet saying. Pass the crowbar, damn it, the fellow will escape. His eyes are open, I heard Daphne saying. Oh, Frank, you are not hurt, are you? She was now kneeling beside me her lovely eyes full of tenderness and sympathy. It was worth all the agony I had endured to be the object of her sweet pity. I tried to speak, but emotion checked my utterance, and I could reply to her question only by an assuring smile. You are looking like the very dead, said the doctor. Here, take a drop of this. This will revive you. Is my hair gray? I murmured, putting my hand to my head, as if it were possible to ascertain by the sense of touch. Do I look old? I feel like a captive liberated from the Bastille. How long have I been in this prison? Years upon years? In a few words, I told my shuddering listeners of the artist's designs on me. From regard to Daphne, I reserved the story of George and for another occasion. Aye, aye, remarked the doctor, gravely shaking his head. I saw this morning that he exhibited all the symptoms of insanity. Genius and madness are often allied. Well, thank heaven you are safe, exclaimed my uncle fervently, though more by your own efforts than by ours he added. Have you only just returned from the magistrates? I asked him. There is a good deal of ingratitude in human nature, and even in the first joy of my deliverance, I felt a disposition to reproach my uncle for what I considered a very tardy rescue, totally forgetful of the fact that if my rescuer had appeared earlier on the scene, there would have been an end for me, for the artist at sight of them would have effected his deadly purpose 
without my being able to offer any resistance. Yes, we have only just returned, he answered, understanding the motive of my question. Everything that possibly could went wrong. The carriage broke down halfway from the manse, and when we set off to finish the journey on foot, we missed our way on the moors and were a long time in finding it again. When we did reach the abbey and did not see you about, we guessed where you were and came at once to the tower. We heard enough to assure us that something very serious was the matter, and as we could not hope to make our way in empty-handed, we ran back for. He was interrupted by a shout coming from outside of the cell, and turning quickly, I saw that the slab that had been lifted up revealing a stairway beneath. Turn your lantern down here, Wilson, cried the baronet excitedly, and lead the way, look sharp, or he'll escape after all. The constable obediently went down the opening, followed by Sir Hugh, my uncle, and two or three other men, thinking that I had as good as right as any to join the pursuit, I rose with the intention of following them, but at Daphne's entreaty I forbore, and leaving the cell, we both walked across the lawn to the abbey, all unconscious of the tragedy that was happening under our very feet. For the steps down which the artist has fled opened into a stone passage, the walls of which were dripping with moisture and stained with horrid fungi. At the foot of the steps, Sir Hugh came upon a recess where they found a grey cloak and a gentleman's dress suit. The baronet, with a look of inquiry on his face, pointed out these things to my uncle. Yes said my uncle. Those are his clothes right enough. They are what he wore the last time we saw him alive. It is clear that Fasari murdered him that night, and he has kept these clothes by him ever since. Look, he went on, this is where he was stabbed, and he pointed to a cut in the back of the coat. As he was handling the garment, something bright fell from the breast pocket and stooping to pick it up, he recognized the ring which Daphne had thrown into the well at Trivoli. We mustn't stop, the baronet said. Hold up the light, Wilson. And the whole party again stumbled forward along the passage. Where does it lead to? the constable asked, peering cautiously into the darkness before him. I wish I could tell you, Sir Hugh replied. I have never seen the place before. It must be the nun's corridor of ancient days. I always understood it had been bricked up. By the way, we must go carefully. If I'm right, there must be a deep chasm ahead. The nun's shaft, and if... Hello, what's that? Distant a few paces in front was a human figure crouching low against the wall. There he is! Several voices cried at once. Take care, said my uncle. Remember, he is a madman. At this, the whole party came to a sudden halt. 
Yield in the king's name, shouted the constable. But whatever effect the king's name may have upon the scene, it cannot be expected to exercise much influence upon a maniac. Rising to his feet, with a wild laugh that sounded unearthly in the echoing passage, the madman ran into the darkness with the pursuit hot behind him. Suddenly, he checked his headlong pace and, turning swiftly, confronted his pursuers. The light held aloft by the constable fell full on his despairing face, and to their dying day, those who saw Angelo Fassari at that moment will never forget the sight. With a gesture in which rage, defiance, and hopelessness were all mingled, he sprang into the air. For one moment he was visible, in the next he had vanished. No sound broke from him. In absolute silence, more terrible than any cry, he was swallowed by the blackness beneath him. By God, he's gone! The baronet shouted, and there was fear in his voice. Stop, stop, for heaven's sake, or you are all dead men. What is it? shouted some, catching the infection of his fear. He has leaped down the shaft of the old silver mine. Thus died Angelo Vasari, and perhaps it was better that he should perish by suicide than be taken alive only to fall into the hangman's hands or drag out a long life in some asylum for the insane. That the story could be kept from the general public was, of course, impossible, and the sensation caused at the inquest by the telling of the manner of his death was enhanced by the account I had to repeat of how my brother came by his. Fazari's studio in London was examined, and evidence was discovered in the cellar corroborating his assertion that he had burned the body of the man whom he had sacrificed to his insane desire for fame. As for the picture itself, Sir Hugh at first thought of destroying it, but finally decided to keep it on account of its marvelous merit as work of art. It was removed from the gallery and hung by itself in a room where it could be inspected by the privileged few. Daphne could never bring herself to look at it. She did not want the idealized image of her lover to be marred by the ghastly presentment of his dead likeness. Whose wife Daphne is now, it is hardly necessary to say. We were married in the spring at Silverdale, and quiet though we wished the wedding to be, the church was crowded with people from far and wide who were eager to see the girl whose beauty had been the cause of such a tragedy. To efface from her mind as far as possible the memory of that tragedy is the chief object of my life, and I am glad to think I do not wholly fail. She wears in addition to her wedding ring a second golden band, the ring that she threw into the well at Rivoli. It is to be buried with her, she says.
May that day be far distant is my constant prayer. The End End of Chapter 15 Part 2 Recording by Mama Chira, Tangerang Selatan End of The Weird Picture by John R. Carling